www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had. Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You want to be a human? I wasn't Jim Crow, and hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... Hi, and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. My name is Gene, and I am your host for today's show. We would like to acknowledge that CKUT is located on unceded Hodensarni Anishinaabeg, Abenake, and Mohawk territories. Two days ago, June 11th, was the International Day of Solidarity with Marius Mason and long-term anarchist prisoners. In the 15 years this tradition has been observed, June 11th has facilitated support and action inspired by imprisoned anarchists. From noise demonstrations outside of jails to letter-writing nights, from fundraisers to arson. Setting aside this day is one of remembering anarchists who are serving long prison sentences, generating support for them, and inspiring solidarity actions. The person who has been the focus of June 11th the longest is Marius Mason. Marius is an anarchist, environmentalist, and animal liberation activist who is currently serving a 22-year sentence. He pleaded guilty in part of taking part for an honor, honor, excuse me, for an arson of a Michigan State University lab conducting GMO experience for Monas Monsanto in 1999, as well as 12 other acts of property destruction. Marius was in prison in 2019, or in 2009, excuse me, during the Green Scare, a time when the U.S. federal government was cracking down on earth and animal liberation struggles. He was incarcerated in a high-security unit until 2017, when after constant advocacy by outside supporters, he was moved to general population. Finally, earlier this year, Marius was involved, was moved from Carswell to Danbury, where he was much closer to many of his friends and family. 
In 2014, he came out publicly as transgender, using he, him pronouns, and eventually secured access to home hormone treatment in 2016. For more information, check out the website his support team maintains at supportmariusmason.org. Okay, we're going to play a little thing for him. Marius Mason, arrested 2008 in Cincinnati for Earth Liberation Direct Actions of Economic Sabotage, during which no one was injured. In 2009, sentenced to nearly 22 years prison, a punishment that far exceeds many for overtly violent offenses in America. The year is now 2019, a decade into his time stolen from family and community. To directly combat the state's intention of this long-term sentence fading activist peers from our lives, it is crucial we renew our solidarity with Marius in words and actions. Keeping his name frequent in conversation, keeping his status in our minds as we would any friend, to show him what his courage means to us, and showing the world that this green scare against environmental defense is no victory for the state and its corporate masters. We will write letters of sustained friendship, raise awareness and provide resources when help is needed. Continue our demand, never wavering, but with heightened enthusiasm and fury every June 11th until he is no longer caged. Free Marius Mason. Never fly with rage against the illegal lies. Fuck the CMU, we're crazy. 
address of a warrior and a pen and just write. Okay, that was Decide Today, Free Marius Mason, a YouTube link. You can find it there. Now, here are a few more updates on other anarchist prisoners. San Swain went on hunger strike during the month of September after prison administrators removed some of his privileges in response to his writing. Michelle Kimball was one of eight Holman prisoners in June 2018, beaten by a riot squad and thrown in a lockup with seemingly no pretext. Eventually, he was released back into general population. Jeremy Hammond was attacked by a guard after accidentally bumping into him, put in solitary confinement for months, and then transferred to the FCI Memphis with a higher security status. He has been removed from college courses and a counseling program that would have reduced his sentence by a year. Eric King has been placed in solitary confinement after defending himself from a guard's attack in August 2018. He was transferred to USP McCreary, where his communications have been re severely restricted. Joaquin Garcia has been sentenced to 13 years in prison for the bombing of a prisoner guard training facility in Chile. That's pretty neat. Okay, Connor Stevens of the Cleveland Four was set to be released from prison in April 2019. Freddy Funtavilla, who was imprisoned with two comrades 10 years ago for bank robbery and a murder of a cop, was released into parole in July 2018. Lisa, convicted of robbing banks in Ashen, was placed in solitary and then released back into general population earlier this year. All charges in the J-20 case in the USA have been dropped for the remaining defendants. This would not have been possible without all the support and coordination work done behind the scenes by defendants and their supporters. Repressions of anarchists continue, especially in Russia and Italy. Russian anarchists are being tortured and arrested for membership in a fake organization called The Network. In Italy, the state is conducting multiple operations to clamp down on anarchists, including the ongoing operations Cetilia, Renata, Panasol, and Scripta movement. 
Most of this information would never have gotten out if it wasn't for folks doing support work for anarchist prisoners. Thanks to all the support crews out there, the anarchist Black Cross, Greek and Prison Fighters Fund, and everyone taking an initiative to support imprisoned anarchists. You can find out more about the June 11th and long-term anarchist prisoners at june11.noblog.org. Okay, the time is currently 5.14. And in the, uh, you are listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. Next we'll have an ad. On Saturday, June 15th at 2 p.m., join us for the 6th Annual Spirit Walk on beautiful Mount Royal. The Spirit Walk is an annual fundraiser for the Native Women Shelter of Montreal. Register to walk, set a personal goal, and fundraise for the shelter. All funds go directly to the shelter towards a much-needed healing retreat for our residents. Join us for a fun, community-driven event, including opening prayers by Mohawk elder Sedalia Fazio, and for musical performances by Beatrice Deer, Odea, and the Buffalo Hat Singers. Everyone is welcome. Bring your friends, family, and pets, and come walk with us. Look up Spirit Walk 2019 on Facebook for a link to register. Okay, next up, we, we have a segment in our ongoing history series. This episode features Anne, an anarchist who was arrested in the 1980s for participating in an underground guerrilla group called Direct Action. This is in Canada, by the way, folks. She ended up getting her life sentence and doing seven years in Kingston Prison for Women, PW4, P4W, sorry, which is now closed. She also got her parole revoked on two separate occasions, once in 2006 and once in 2012. And talk to us about the differences between doing time in the prison for women in Kingston versus GVI, the Grand Valley Institute in southern Ontario, one of the regional federal prisons for women that was built after P4W was closed. She also went in Quinte, which is a provincial prison where she also did a bit of time. In 2018, and published a book about her time in prison. It's called Taking the Rap, Women Doing Time for Society's Crimes. Now we go to that. Welcome to episode 5 of What Happened to Prisoner Justice Day, a podcast mini-series about the history of prisons in Canada, focusing on differences in the prison system in the 1960s to 1980s versus today. This episode features Anne Hansen. Anne is an anarchist who was arrested in the 1980s for participating in an underground guerrilla group called Direct Action. She ended up getting a life sentence and doing seven years in Kingston's Prison for Women, which is now closed. She also got her parole revoked on two separate occasions, once in 2006 and once in 2012. In the interview that follows, Anne talks about the differences between doing time in the prison for women in Kingston versus GVI, the Grand Valley Institute, one of the regional federal prisons for women that was built after P4W was closed. Anne also mentions Quinty, 
which is a provincial prison in Kingston, Ontario, where she also did a bit of time. In the interview, you can hear Anne's dog whining in the background, so a heads up that that's what the background noise is. Well, my name's Anne Hansen. Back in the 80s, I was part of a group called Direct Action, which is kind of like an anarchist urban guerrilla group. Um, at the time, there were a lot of urban guerrilla groups all over the world that had sort of, like in Europe and in, in the United States, modeled themselves more or less after like the national liberation movements in Africa and South America and that. But we were like at the tail end of this sort of, of the urban guerrilla, uh, I guess you could say it was like a, you know, movement almost, you know, globally. But we did have a lot of influence from the feminist movement, indigenous people, anarchists, uh, environmentalists. So we were not Marxists, which most urban guerrilla groups were at that time. And uh, we did uh, a number of actions. We, uh, you know, blew up a transformer of this Chica Dunsmuir line that was just being constructed to prevent the um, the expansion of the pulp and paper industry on Vancouver Island. And then we uh, we did a bombing of the Lytton plant in Toronto, which was producing the guidance systems for the cruise missile before it had even been tested as a weapon. Um, Unfortunately, uh, a few people were injured because we mistakenly thought that the authorities would follow our, you know, precautions and warnings and things of clearing the building. There were people working at the time and shutting off the roads, but they didn't. So there was a big lesson learned there. Never, never sabotage a place where people could or anybody could be hurt and expect that the authorities will clear it if you give them a warning. And then there was the Red Hot Video Fire bombings, which were at that time, sort of cutting edge um, porn shops, but they did specialize in more in violent porn and pedophilia. It was a lot of porn that, that was, you know, non-consensual. It wasn't just sort of erotica. And they were trying to normalize it by putting these red hot videos in uh, suburban strip malls and stuff like that. And then we were arrested and we were all convicted and did various lengths of time. We were on, it was, you know, the, the prison for women was just like, um, uh, if you if you see an old Hollywood movie about a sort of stereotypical old prison, that's exactly what P4W looked like. Just, there were tiers, like rain, two ranges actually, one on each side of the building, and there were two tiers on each range. And then there were, they had, in the 70s, during sort of, I guess, Keynesian economics, you know, it was a reform period. They bought some military barracks and attached them to the prison for women, and that became the minimum security unit. And they bought a giant gym as well from the, from the uh, Royal Military College and also put that in there. But we, most, a lot of us stayed on the ranges, like it was a conscientious choice. Mm -hmm. And we were very, um, you know, in many ways we were isolated from the guards because the surveillance was very different than what it is today. Like there were no audiovisual, um, like technological audiovisual systems. So we didn't have any, you know, those little, uh, uh, you know, blue eyes, you know, on, in the range. There was no intercoms throughout the ranges. So the guards, they made like an hourly count. They would just walk on through. And, uh, you know, they were also fairly vulnerable, so they really weren't always that provocative. Like, for example, 
like homosexuality was the norm. Everybody had shams on their doors. And if the guards were walking along and the shams were shut, they knew that, that something was going on in there. And they would very rarely open them. They'd just say, who's in there? And we'd, we'd respond, right? So it wasn't like it was great. But in a sense, uh, it was kind of, in a lot of ways, like a little autonomous women's community with being run by this sort of military dictatorship from afar, you know. But, uh, but when I left, which was in, the, in 1990, 91, in, in that period, things did change. But I wasn't in P4W at that time when they had the, you know, the, the riot and segregation like that was aired on Fifth Estate when the goon squad came in and cut the women's clothes off and it ended up being aired. Um, then they they turned one of the ranges into sort of like a special handling unit. Yeah, so that was more in the mid-90s to, mm -hmm. to, to until they actually closed the prison that they began to use, uh, like really separate uh, the women into different security levels. And um, they they shipped off women who they considered behavioral issues, like that had they considered to have behavioral issues that were sort of a threat to themselves or the population to special isolation units in the men's prisons and some women were even sent over to KP to the treatment center but I wasn't there then so I don't have any sort of first-hand experience with that I only have first-hand experience with P4W and then when I was suspended and I went to GVI a couple of times mm -hmm. in 2006 and 2012 so with remand prisons in general is that there's this constant movement of prisoners you know like people are never there for very long and so there's never any time to establish um, sort of um, relationships solidarity so like you know you get uh, women who are coming in and out all the time like there are you know people who live on the street they're in and out of Quinty all the time they get to know the guards better than that they get to know the prisoners so you had, in general, when you do not have a prison environment that is stable, like in other words, you have a cell, you're in the same cell for years, you get to know the other people on the ranges or in these pods or whatever you want to call them, it causes so much disruption in general. Like, um, it would be just like in this house, if you were living in this house and people were constantly coming and going, you would never establish any kind of security or deep, intense relationships. And that's what I found was going on in Quinty. But I think that the authorities, and when you look at, you know, criminology departments, for example, in universities that have been operating for who knows how long now, like decades, they and, psych, and psychology departments that also have students going, working, as criminologists as well. I mean, I'm sure that they have studied this and they can see that one of the most threatening things to a prison is having prisoners develop deep bonds of um, solidarity, uh, unity. And so I noticed right away when I went to, when I was, when I was suspended in 2012, especially in the maximum security unit and apparently on the compound as well, they seem to have a policy 
Nobody ever verified it. But people were constantly being moved. Uh, well, okay, I can speak for the maximum security unit. Like, I was moved twice. And I was only there for three months for no apparent reason. And I watched even before I was moved from one pod, which is like five women per pod. I watched other women being moved. Like, the, the pod would be completely simpatico, you know. There would be no conflicts between women. And all of a sudden, a woman would be moved to another one. And then, uh, you know, disruption of, the, of, of what was going on. And I phoned out to the street when, you know, I, was, I had a phone call with somebody and it was a guy and he'd been in the, he, when he was very young, he became a cadet and joined the military. And he speculated that uh, it was to, to, to cause disruption and that this was something that they did in the military all the time. They would move guys in the barracks to prevent them from developing stronger bonds of unity with each other than they did, um, you know, sort of their uh, bonds of obedience to their commanding officers because, you know, they didn't want any kind of rebellions going on. And recently I spoke with a woman who was in P4W with me and she spent seven years in GVI. Her, she's also a lifer and had her parole suspended and revoked. And I had not even talked to her about this. And she mentioned independently how odd it was that they kept taking women, like they called them units. They're like the, these so-called bungalows, right? Like they call them units now because the women are more politicized. They stopped calling them bungalows at a certain point. She said they were always moving people for no apparent reason. And she came to the same conclusion without me even bringing the topic up. She said, I know it's because they don't want us to get too close, you know. And she's not political, like, so she didn't use sort of political words. And so I'm assuming that this is something that criminology students, psychologists, you know, uh, who work within the CSC hierarchy have realized is, is a way of preventing organized like work stoppages, possible riots, any kind of organized resistance. And it does work. Mm -hmm. It does create a lot of dissension and discord conflict amongst the women. certain cliches you hear all the time like no matter how long ago you were in prison or whatever people always say oh it used to be so solid now everybody's always ratting out and you always hear that the men's are way more solid like that they stick to like prisoners justice day like if a guy eats he gets beat up that is not the case in GVI or or even in P4W I think that what they also have started doing is like they Everything is a privilege, you know, and that does cause a lot of breakdown in solidarity. Like people have said that in the past, they didn't have as the opportunity to have as many passes or they wouldn't consider a lot of things privileges that they would take away. And so I think that, that the prison authorities have also learned how to use just about everything, like well, getting transferred from the maximum security unit onto the compound, for example, is, is something you have to earn. So, you know, after a while, if you're in this pod of five people and everybody's constantly moving, and let's say you have children, 
and you'd like to have uh, go to the family unit to see them like that's a very powerful tool that they can use against you is your own family like if you do not comply and if you're not you know and the guards you know they they come on the unit every day and try to have meetings with people you know so that I think there's a lot of pressure that is put upon people when they use everything as a privilege like even I've heard from the indigenous women like participation in sweats for example is supposed to be a right but from all accounts it's also used as a privilege like they'll say stuff like that well you can't go this woman can't go because she is in, unstable and it is suicidal she has to be kept in in a, in a 24 under 24 hour surveillance like they use excuses like that so when they use everything as a privilege rather than as a right something that you can expect to get no matter what then I think it really does break down solidarity. I know you weren't in in like the first years when Prisoner Justice Day was starting, but if you could talk a bit about what Prisoner Justice Day looked like when you were in P4W. Prisoner's Justice Day, everybody didn't eat. I mean, I, I don't know, just people, it was just one of those things where everybody did not eat. There was, a, you know, quite a bit of peer group pressure for people who really wanted to eat or whatever. Um, we didn't have any kind of uh, events around it. What was weird to me was when I went to, to GVI in 2006, it, was, it hadn't been open that long. And I think it was still sort of following a little bit of a reform paradigm because the administration at GVI had actually facilitated um, this sort of like there were drummers, like, like indigenous drummers, Kim Pate came in and did, and there was women from the compound who spoke on a little, you know, platform about Prison Justice Day. There was a film event in one of the one of the activity rooms where they showed films that were made by the Joyceville Lifers Group, which were really pretty, pretty good. Um, and I was really taken aback by this, you know. So they actually and they allowed women to make Prisoners Justice Day t-shirts. But when I went back in 2012, it was all outlawed completely. They, they weren't allowed to make t-shirts. They, there was even women, like prisoners, who were condemning some women who had made t-shirts by hand, you know. So that was all part of, I think, like the Harper regime. This was during the Harper area and the sort of really crackdown on the administrations to try to try to abolish Prisoners Justice Day, really. Yeah, so it was a big change. But in, but in P, all those years in P4W, um, it was mainly a day where people didn't eat and on their own reflected about, you know, the women who, who died in there that they knew and that sort of thing. People who didn't participate were really frowned upon, to say the least. I wouldn't say beat up, but there was a lot of peer group pressure. People didn't participate mm -hmm. because it was, it was the right thing to do, so. One of the other things that has come up in the interviews that I've been doing around like what's changed or what were the biggest changes or the changes that had the biggest impact was also something you talked about in your book, which is changes to the protective custody policies. Mm -hmm. And I think you weren't in P4W by the time those changes started getting implemented, but do you have a sense of like what the changes in protective custody were and how they ended up affecting people's sense of trusting each other or having a bit of solidarity on the inside? Yeah. Um, well, in P4W, we, I was part of the, we, there was an inmate committee at the time, and I was on it for a very brief period of time, <laughs> and I became very disillusioned with it. But, um, yeah, I remember George Caron telling us at this inmate committee meeting that there, the CSC was going to start integrating protective custody prisoners into population, and without 
knowing beforehand, the whole inmate committee just told him, like, this is outrageous, not just for us, but even for the protective custody women, you know? Um, and we all walked out. But it wasn't implemented. Uh, this was not that long before. It took, I think it took about a year or so before they actually did implement the integration. But yeah, it was, they, it was definitely integrated when I went back to GVI there in 2006 and 2012. I don't know how much it would have had to do with solidarity because the women who were in protective custody, at least when, when I was in P4W, were almost all, were all women, I would say. I, I don't know of anybody who was in protective custody because they were a rat. Mm -hmm. Women who were isolated you know, by the population because they were rats. And I have to say, quite often, that, that, you, that word was used very loosely. But they would, women would usually just check into segregation. And sometimes they'd stay there for a long, long time, like years. You know, they would self-isolate out of fear of the population, you know. I don't remember anyone being put into protective custody by the administration because they were considered rats. They were all women. Uh, Carla Homoko wasn't in when I was there, but they were all women who had killed a child. And I must say I'm a bit sympathetic towards them because uh, from what I've heard, a lot of the, it could it, it could have been errors, you know, women who shook their baby or, I don't know, that's another big topic. So now when I was back in GVI, there was, again, the women were in population and they were definitely um, pariahs, you know, people were, were, were always picking on them and some of the women had done really horrifying things. I mean, you've read in the paper, but the, the women who were considered protective custody were, were still, by and large, women who had killed a child. And, you know, the, the accusation of women being rats is, was, is always rampant since I've been in there. It's just, you know, the way things, even in on the street here, you know, people gossip about one another, but in prison, it's very, like, I've always been very critical of that. You know, like, you got to, if you're going to accuse somebody of being a rat, you should have absolute proof, like evidence, that someone went to court and testified, not just that you saw them speaking to a guard at the gate, which is what happens. People don't like somebody. You know, they're kind of very low on the pecking order and they're walking through the barrier talking to a guard for a few minutes. Well, they could be saying any number of things that are completely innocent, but they'll be right away, oh, she's a rat. You know, it's just, you know, the way things go, I guess. There are informants in every prison, but I think quite often it's not the people that get labeled rats. You know, you don't, it's different, I think, you know. I think the warden, like, they often will call people. Like, I, you know, I got taken to custody when I had GVI. You don't get told why you're being taken custody. You can't just go, I'm not going. Well, you could. But even then, they'd probably drag you there, right? Mm -hmm. So you go, and it could be any number of weird things. Mm -hmm. And one time I got taken there, and there was a couple of uh, RCMP people there, you know, cops. And uh, I was sitting in the room before this woman came in, and she looked just like a punk. Like she was all like cool, you know. Uh, she did piercings, but her hair and her, her clothing, it was obvious that she dressed up to play this role. And she did introduce herself within a minute as working for the RCMP. And I was really taken aback and she wanted to talk to me. She said about my core beliefs. And I said I wanted to go back to the, to the pod. She tried a few times. She kept, even though I kept saying I want to go, I'd like to go back to the pod. I was just 
just kept like just like you'd say if you want to see your lawyer and uh, she did eventually after maybe 10 minutes of trying to convince me to talk to her about in not she kept saying you don't have to tell me names of anybody we don't have to talk about your friends or people in population I just want to know I just would like to have a political discussion with you but, but that was more recently, right? That was, in, that was in 2012 when I was in the pod. So I'm just saying, when it comes to being informants, let's say, any number of people can be taken down to the warden's office. And people are. I was taken down to the warden's office, too, when I first came to, went to P4W, and they want to chat. And you don't know who actually would chat and complain at some point about one of their fellow prisoners who's really, let's say, bullying them or something. I mean, you just don't know. It's not great, but compared to GVI, it, I have fond memories because the relationships with the women were so great and the physical structure was set up for that. I was in the same cell for the entire time and I had women who were right, it was let's say we're all in prison together and we're all right beside each other. Can you not see how close we'd all get? Mm -hmm. Every day we'd go down for coffee and whenever there's a, a two-week lockdown, we would be passing each other food and, and notes. You know what I mean? You get this incredible relationship that you'll never have again in your life of, in, of intense, really deep relationships, you know? I can't, and I still, like, you know, in some ways better than any other period of my life when it comes to relationships with other women. And no guards standing around watching you. You can talk about anything. You know what I mean? And then and then GBI, like the pod was horrible. Five women. And there was this one woman who was a total bully. Like I thought it was me at times. But then, I, you know, a, a woman who I really respected, who I ran into in the library there. I don't, I guess I shouldn't mention names. We'd chat and... Uh, it's just the way it was. And again, I think we, we both were aware it was because of this constant movement. And there did seem to be more prisoners. And possibly it's because of this lack of solidarity and collectivity. There were these sort of right-wing prisoners, too, who were who'd say stuff like, well, don't complain. This is soft. This is what the bullet, this, I'll just call her the bully on our pod out of five women she ran the show she saw herself as a tough and she was sort of tough yeah 20 you know but she'd be if you complain she'd say what are you complaining about this is this is nothing is this soft so you know it's weird that twist right so then you start people just everybody sort of start shutting up about complaining and there was just sort of like little tough gang mentality amongst some women that was very bullying, even on the compound. And like people uh, who were uptight about some women, like I said, making uh, hand-painted Prisoner's Justice Day t-shirts. So that I never saw in P4W ever. Like there was never this sort of, what I would call kind of a right wing 
you know, group of prisoners. I mean, not everybody got along, but politically, there was never this sort of group of people who were uptight about, let's say, people wanted to fast or go or have a hunger strike, which we did a few times for very short periods of time. I'm wondering if during any of those instances when people were doing things on the inside, you were successfully able to reach out to people on the outside and get support from the outside and what that would look like. Not really. I don't, you know what? Not really. Even though out in BC, I think it was more the case at that time because the BC had a, like clerical Hain joint effort started at that time. But I'm just being honest here. I don't think there were people, people who came in, there were volunteers who came in. The native sisterhood had a really good network of, of indigenous elders and stuff, but really it's very difficult. It was, I know Gail Horry, for example, I can use her name, was the inmate chairperson as they were officially called for many years. And she was really political and spent tons of time writing to different women's groups and different political groups. But really there was never a good connection. And I think a lot of it is because it was very difficult to establish that with the prisoners. Like you can't just, you have to get permission to phone people. You have to get approval to come in to visit. And when something happens, it's often happens quickly and then being able to contact those people. What kind of volunteers were coming inside? What kind of programming was there? When you well, were... it was really more E. Fry, Elizabeth Fry, and then there were, um, there was some university courses, so there were some Queen's professors that were coming in, mm -hmm. and um, religious groups, of course. There were religious people. And the indigenous, you know, I, I'm not indigenous, so I, I'm probably leaving that out. The Native Sisterhood had the best support system because they had, um, well, there was, uh, yeah, people living even here in Kingston who went in all the time, and Indigenous elders who would, like, Ellen Moves Camp from South Dakota, a very well-known, she came regularly to the Sisterhood meetings, and uh, there was, it was a whole different ballgame for the Indigenous community. In, the Native Sisterhood in B4W was really uh, groundbreaking and great. the fifth episode of What Happened to Prisoner Justice Day. In the summer of 2018, Anne released a book about her time in prison, and you should definitely check it out. The book is called Taking the Rap, Women Doing Time for Society's Crimes, and it recounts Anne's years in prison in the 1980s and her two shorter stints inside on parole revocations in the 2000s. That was another segment of our ongoing history series. In that interview, Anne talked about the differences between doing time in Kingston and women's 
for women uh, versus uh, Grand Valley Institute in Southern Ontario, one of the regional federal prisons for women that was built after P4W was closed. Now we're going to do another commercial, I guess. On June 15th at 12 p.m. at Laurier Park, join the Mouvement Fest for a festive picnic and demo to make visible the rights of people that are differently abled and their families. We defend social services that aim for a person's autonomy and that answer their needs. After the cuts from the past years, we demand accessibility in the health and social services. Be there June 15th at 12 p.m. at Laurier Park. For more information, go to mouvementphas.org. That's movementfast.org. A CKUT co-presentation.
on the level of our unconsciousness. For example, what does the billboard say? Come and play, come and play. Forget about the movement.
Okay, guys, we're getting to the end of another show. For more information, check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month and at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next Prison Radio Show will air next week on Friday, June 28th at 11 a.m. If you have any questions on anything that you have heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you are in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at the Prison Radio Show, or simply PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A 2B3. So cool.